Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, worship team. Dan, appreciate you all very much. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 13 again, if you want to continue looking at what the Lord wants to say to us this chapter as we begin this new year and and seek to love in the ways he calls us to love and to respond to what's going on in our country in a way that truly glorifies God. 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you may have run across a story that has been going around on Facebook. Um, Jan read it to us this week. She ran across it. It's about um, a woman who was in a McDonald's drive-thru, and there was a car behind her, a young lady in that car, and while she was ordering her meal, the young lady behind her began blowing the horn impatiently. And so she wrapped up her order and went to the first window, and she paid uh, for her meal, and she was at first a little annoyed by the, the woman blowing the horn behind her, but said to herself, why not take the high road? And so she actually paid for that person's meal. And so she went to the second window to get her meal, and uh, the woman pulled up and was shocked to hear from the person there that the lady ahead of her had actually paid for her meal. And so she leaned out the window and motioned thank you. was a little embarrassed in her, at her impatience. And when you think about that, that's exactly the kind of thing that we're encouraging uh, each other to, to do when we talk about patience, right? Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the story. According to the story, the woman, when she got to the second window to pick up her meal, showed both receipts and picked up the other woman's meal and drove off with it. As a result, uh, as she was driving off, she looked back at this woman, honked her horn, and said, Patience is a virtue. And the comment was, maybe she'll learn a lesson today. So I don't know if that's a true story, if that's just a Facebook legend. But at first you think, wow, that is really taking the high road. That's exactly what God calls us to do. And yet it's interesting if you listen to people's response. It was um, liked or repeated or reposted like 200,000 times. And some people liked the story and some didn't. Some said, this is great. This is the, one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. And um, best post in a long time, triumphant win, you know, brilliant act of revenge. Um, there should be a statue to this woman. Uh, I bow down to the petty queen. And that's what some people were saying is that how petty can you get? But this story was actually... Uh, posted by a woman in Australia who got it from a woman in Ireland. Someone else said it came from a, about a woman in Michigan, so I don't even know if it's true or not. But this is what the woman who posted it said. I shared it simply to give people a laugh and a change from the hate and violence being spread. <laughs> laugh, yes. Change from the hate and violence being spread, no. That's encouraging the very same thing. Uh, in us. It's encouraging continued hate and violence in terms of responding to people uh, that are impatient with us, with impatience. Uh, fighting sin with sin. And the Bible tells us that's not the way to fight sin. That's not the way to respond to sin with sin. It doesn't work that way in God's economy. 
And so let me read for us these verses again in 1 Corinthians 13, just as a reminder as we continue to look at this passage today and encourage our hearts to not fight sin with sin. In verse 1 it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Verse 4, it says, love is patient. The very first thing Paul highlights with regard to the kind of love God is calling us to is the idea of patience. And this is my final working definition. I've added a few things to it, uh, which you'll probably see why as we work through this last uh, message on patience. But patience is the holy restraint of suffering long, and that's what the word patience means, It's long-suffering, those two words put together. The holy restraint of suffering long that continues to trust in love in the unplanned place, at the unplanned pace, with difficult people in uncomfortable circumstances, without retaliation and complaining, no matter the degree or duration of the suffering, to the glory of the patient God. And so... We want to think a little bit more about this to encourage our hearts to embrace uh, what God is calling us to and to look to him, as Mark said, for the grace we need to love in this way. Um, patience is restraint. And as we move on and talk more about what Paul has to say about love, you'll, you'll begin to see that patience opens the, the door for us to do other things love-wise. And it's required for us to be able to do things like be kind. And so patience is at the beginning or the head of the list for a good, good reason. Because our natural response is sin. We are naturally inclined to fight sin with sin. And so the first thing that has to happen for us to love people is to restrain our sinful responses to what they're doing or what the circumstances might be. And that's why patience is waiting well. It's not just waiting around, it's waiting well. It's it's waiting while continuing to trust and continuing to love in the other ways that God calls us to. We start off by talking about the fact that we live in a fragile 
uh, culture where everyone is easily offended. And they lash out at people very easily and very quickly. And that is not what God calls us to. We're not to be snowflakes in that sense. Uh, We're not to be so delicate uh, that we just easily uh, fight sin with sin. And we're not to be part of the cancel culture. We're not to go around canceling people, walking away from relationships, hardening, hardening our hearts, and just writing people off because they've offended us or they've uh, hurt us in some way. And so if there's ever a time in the history of our country where we need to really think about what love calls us to, it's certainly at this time when so many people are encouraging and celebrating uh, snowflake-like responses to offenses and the cancel culture. And so I want to just briefly try to answer the question, how then can we be patient or how can we be more patient? Um, the easy, easiest bottom line answer is we have to trust God more. Um, it says in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. So if we're praying for grace, what does God have to give us in order to give us more grace? More faith. We have to trust him. Uh, it says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please him. We can't please God and be patient without faith. It says in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Galatians 5.5, 5, Paul talks about, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness, which means if I'm being led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, it will be through faith. Faith will be involved. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Those two things go together, being set apart by the Spirit and and grown or sanctified by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Peter could say in 1 Peter 5, 9, but resist him, speaking of the devil, firm in your faith. And then finally, the verse that we've highlighted quite a bit lately, Galatians 5, 6 says, In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So faith and love go together, which means faith and patience. The kind of patience God is calling us to goes together. So if I'm not being patient, that means I'm not trusting like I should. If, not, if I'm not being patient in my circumstances as God calls me to, if I'm not being patient with difficult people like God calls me to, it's, the real problem is with God, with my relationship with God. It's not the circumstance. It's not the person that's difficult. If I'm not being patient, it's because of my relationship with God. There's something amiss. I'm not trusting God. I'm not seeing God. I'm not relying on God and hoping in God as I need to. And everything we've said up to this point, in a sense, is meant to help correct wrong thinking and to encourage greater trust in God in various ways. But as we conclude this series, I just want to touch on a few things that, um, in a summary fashion, that I hope will be helpful. And the first thing is that I by faith, need to embrace suffering as a friend and not an enemy. 
I need to see suffering as a friend and not an enemy. Um, it's like um, our kids made a movie uh, one time when they were little or littler called uh, The Man with the Knife. And if you see a man with a knife coming toward you, um, it really depends on how you perceive what he's up to, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Now, if you perceive him as a thief who's out to rob you and kill you, then you're going to be afraid and you're not going to like that at all. But if you realize he's a surgeon and he's going to take out that cancer that's killing you, and he's actually going to use that knife to heal you, then you see that suffering that you're going through as something you should embrace. And so it makes a huge difference. And that's why Paul, and we looked at Second Corinthians 12, where Paul said, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Why? For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's because he sees the man with the knife as ultimately being God who loves him and is out to heal him, not kill him. The children of Israel in the wilderness always thought God was out to kill them. And yet he was really out to bless them and to heal them in all the ways they really needed to. There's so many scriptures we could look at. I didn't even put all of them in your notes. Some of the ones I didn't include in your notes are like Romans 5, 3 through 5, where Paul says we exult in our tribulations, which means I embrace suffering as a good thing. James 1, 2, 2 through 4 is something we sang about where it says, Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. In Acts chapter 5, 40 and 41, the disciples rejoice that they got to suffer for the name of Jesus. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed when people speak evil of you because your reward in heaven is great. And in Philippians 1, Paul says, God has granted you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his name's sake. He's given you a gift of grace, not only in faith, but in suffering. And so God wants us to see our suffering as a friend, not an enemy. Now, does that mean I never pray for relief? No. Paul said, I asked three times uh, for relief. And Jesus didn't say, don't ask me for relief. He said, in this case, I'm not going to grant relief. I'm going to grant you suffering. So God does want us to pray for relief and for uh, meeting of needs and, and for healing and all those things that we just prayed for, as Mark led us in praying for. We should pray for those things. But what if God says, no, then I'm to trust him for the grace I need and trust that the only reason he's saying no is because it's a good thing for me to continue to suffer and that he's going to give me greater blessing through the suffering than through the healing or through the provision of what I'm looking for. And so that's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 could say, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Or in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. You're just being faithful to me by giving me suffering. You're just being faithful to your promises to me, faithful to your purposes, your good purposes in my life by afflicting me. So it comes down to asking the question, Is the last thing I want to do is suffer? Or is the last thing I want to do to sin, is sin? 
What do I fear more, suffering or sin? What do I want more, relief from suffering or deliverance from sin? Charles Spurgeon could say, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health with the exception of sickness. He also said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got out of of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. So he says, all the good times and easy times, I've had very little grace through that. He says, but the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is beyond calculation. It's beyond adding up and, and measuring. He says, affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. And so suffering is something that is um, a thing for the believer that we're not to fear. We're to feel free to ask that God would relieve us, but know that if he says no, it's because he wants to use it for our greater good and for the greater glory of his name and for the good of those around us as well. And so it's no small thing to say, Lord, thy will be done. Would Please relieve me of this thorn in the flesh, but thy will be done, which means I submit myself to your will. I submit myself to whatever suffering you believe is best for your glory and my good and the good of those around me. The second thing is to not only embrace suffering as a friend, but to look long and hard at the patience of God towards you. The reality is that which we look long and hard at is what we begin to become like. So whatever I'm looking long and hard at, I'm going to be transformed into that image in various ways. Um, In Romans 2, verse 4, um, Paul says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The question basically is, do you think lightly of God's patience with you? If I'm going to be patient with other people, I can't think lightly of God's patience with me. I have to think deeply, profoundly. um, I need to focus my heart on how patient God has been with me. It's interesting, in the book of Jonah, Jonah's complaining to the Lord for not destroying the Ninevites. And he says um, in chapter 4, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah could say, I know this is the way you are, but I still wish you would have destroyed them. Why? Jonah wanted retaliation against the Ninevites. The Ninevites were cruel, were a cruel nation, and his people had suffered under their hands. He wanted retaliation. He wanted revenge. And so he knew that God was great and patient, slow to anger. But that didn't make him more patient more long-suffering with the Ninevites didn't make him to 
have a holy restraint toward retaliation toward the Ninevites. Why? Because he must not have looked very long at how patient God had been with him. How he deserved the same thing the Ninevites deserved. He saw himself as being different. And therefore he called down God's wrath upon others, but did not see how patient God had been with him. You know, one of the things I thought about, and this was odd, last night as I was um, in and out of sleep, this came into my mind over and over again for some reason. But if you look at the Old Testament, a lot of people look at the Old Testament and they'll see how often uh, God's judgment is talked about and how the wrath of God is talked about so much in the Old Testament. And they get the picture of God as being... Uh, someone who's just filled with wrath, just an angry God who can't wait to punish people. And they see stories of the flood or of Sodom and Gomorrah and things like that, and they just think God is just this terrible ogre who's just going around uh, uh, pouring out his wrath on people left and right and just uh, someone you'd never want to know and be in the presence of. And yet... The reality is, that's a total misreading of the Old Testament. Because every time it talks about God's judgment, that's an act of love. God doesn't have to tell anybody he's about to judge them for their sin if they don't repent. He doesn't have to give them a heads up. He could just take them out. He could just punish them. So to warn people over and over again, don't you know that if you don't repent and humble yourself and ask for mercy and and come to me as you should, you will bear the, the just penalty of your sin. And so it's God's mercy and grace and love to warn over and over again in the Old Testament. But the reality is that the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and even some things you might find in the New Testament are isolated events in certain ways. If you consider the length of time, at least 4,000 years, if not many, many more than that. And so if you think about, okay, God did, uh, in the Bible at least, we can see at least you know, five or so really big things God did to judge people. In 4,000 or more years? So what are we missing? We're missing the patience of God. Why isn't he he destroying cities every day like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Why isn't he wiping out the world with a flood every 10 years? Why isn't he doing more of that, not less of that? Has the sin changed? No. And so the Old Testament isn't filled with this angry God who can't wait to judge people. It's filled with a God who's showing long-suffering with people who spurn him every day. And so it's a testimony to God's long-suffering and patience. That's what we see in the Old Testament. And that's why God calls us uh, in the New Testament to be imitators of God. Ephesians 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. I'm to... um, Remember how much God has been patient with me. If you read the story in Matthew 18, where the man pleads uh, for uh, his master to have patience with him and he'll repay everything, and his master forgives him and lets him go, and then he goes out and throws his fellow slave in jail. 
even though the the fellow slave says, please have patience with me, he refuses to do so. And the whole point of the story is, if God has shown us such incredible patience, we're to show that incredible patience to others and out of gratitude to live that way. And therefore, I have to fix my eyes on the glory of God in Christ and and be transformed by beholding the patience of God. Like it says in Second Corinthians 3, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Another thing, and these are all points that if you read through Jonathan Edwards' um, sermon, he highlights these in different ways. And in the extended notes, you can read those um, selected quotes, which I don't have time to do so. But another thing he highlights is that humility and patience go closely together because of what it says in Ephesians 2, where it talks about with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. He, he highlights the fact that I need to humble myself concerning what I deserve. Lamentations 3.39 says, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? And basically the idea is that I don't deserve to be treated better than I'm being treated. In fact, most of the time I'm treated much better than I deserve by people, certainly by God. And so when people mistreat me, Jonathan Edwards would argue that my wrong response is actually rooted in pride. He says, A humble spirit disinclines us to indulge resentment of injuries, for he that is little and unworthy in his own eyes will th- not think so much of an injury offered to him as he that, is, that has high thoughts of himself. For it is deemed a greater and higher enormity to offend one that is great and high than one that is mean and vile. It is pride or self-conceit that is very much the foundation of a high and bitter resentment and of an unforgiving and revengeful spirit. He goes on to talk about the fact that not only do I need to remember that I don't deserve to get better than I'm getting, which doesn't justify anybody's sin, but it does attack our own pride. I have to remember that even through those things that people do, that God is working it together for my good. And that, as we've said over and over again, I need to see it as coming from the hand of God, not just the hand of men. And so that God is at work in such a way that we will not lose. He will always work it together for our good. And that Romans 8 makes it clear that that good is that we become like Christ. There's a story of this um, women's group that was looking at a, a verse in Malachi that talks about God sitting as a smelter and purifier of silver. And so one of the ladies went to spend some time with a silversmith and watched him work and he would take out a piece of metal and stick it in the middle of the fire. And he said, I do this because I have to put it in the very hottest part of the fire so that the impurities can be brought out. And she asked him, do you ever just kind of stick it in there and leave it and walk off? And he says, oh no, I have to keep my eyes on that piece of metal the whole time because I wouldn't want to leave it in there too long or it will damage the metal. I have to 
just hold it in there just the right amount of time. And she asked him, well, how do you know when it's just the right amount of time? And he said, oh, that's easy when I see my image in it. That's exactly how I know when it's been held in the fire just the right amount of time. The last thing that actually Jonathan Edwards highlights is he says, I must seek to treat others as I want God to treat me. That ultimately, if I want God to be patient with me, but I refuse to be patient with others, I shouldn't be surprised if I'm working against myself. Like the Lord Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So all of those things are ways in which we need to uh, look hard at God's patience with us so that we can find grace to be more patient with those in our lives and more patient in our own circumstances. But there's no doubt there are all kinds of objections that come up in our hearts, and that's the third thing, is we have to fight those objections. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we have to preach to ourselves and not just listen to the objections of our heart. Um, In Ezekiel 18.25, it says, Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? So even the children of Israel were saying, Your ways are not right, God. And so why would our hearts ever cry out that way? God, your way is not right. Well, sometimes it's because we don't think, um, or we, we don't think it's just. It seems unjust to respond with patience. Why? Because it seems like we're letting people get away with things. Right? Uh, Aren't we letting them get away with things if we don't return blow for blow? If we don't fight sin with sin, fight fire with fire, aren't we letting them get away with it? Well, that's where trusting God comes in because in Romans 12, it says in verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so it's a matter of trust. Can I trust God to do the just work? Or am I going to be God, or try to be God, and to give people what they deserve? And if I do, I'll never be a patient person. I have to trust God to do that as he sees fit, when he sees fit, and how he sees fit. There's a story of a farmer who was an atheist, and he liked to taunt Christians, and he had a great uh, crop one year. And he took out an ad in the paper, you might remember, and he said, Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The Christians in his um, little town took out another ad that simply said, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. Which means God is patient with you. God is long-suffering with you. Even though you reject him and spit in his face, he's still blessing you. He's still restraining his judgment, his rightful judgment upon you. And that's why it says in... Exodus 34, it says, God God appeared to Moses 
and said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is patient, but that doesn't mean he's never going to bring people to judgment if they continue to rebel against him. He's patient, but he will not leave sin unpunished. So I don't have to punish sin. That's not my job. That's God's job. And so even though being patient with people who sin against us may seem unjust, it's not if I trust God for that justice. It also can seem unwise because aren't they just going to continue doing it? If I don't fight fire with fire, aren't they going to think they're just kind of getting away with it and uh, they will continue doing it? Well, Actually, it's the, the opposite. In Proverbs 24, 17 and 18, it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, for the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Which the implication is, if you sin against the one who's sinning against you, you actually hinder God's just work. In that situation, you don't further the work of God. You actually, in a sense, turn away God's just and righteous anger from him. Um, Sometimes it seems unrealistic. Can I really expect good to come out of bad? That's in that really the whole issue of embracing suffering. Do I really believe it when God says he's going to bring good out of that bad that I've experienced through this person or through this situation. And do I really believe Romans 8:28? We say we believe God's sovereign. We say we believe he's working for our good, but it's only in these situations with difficult people and uncomfortable circumstances that we really find out if we believe those things or not. Do we really believe God is up to our good in those things? It exposes our unbelief many times. The last thing is it seems simplistic. To simply say uh, what that person did to me was the result of the hand of God or this um, circumstance, bad circumstance I'm going through simply from the hand of God, isn't that a little simplistic? What about Satan? Isn't Satan involved? What about sinful people? Aren't they involved? And the answer is yes. And one of the best illustrations of that is the experience of Job. Read Job 1 and 2. Was God very much behind what happened to Job? Yes. But Satan was very much involved, and the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans were very much involved. But God was in it for Job's good. Satan was in it for his destruction. The Chaldeans and the Sabaeans were in it for Job's destruction and for their selfish ends. And so I can see a very selfish person who's doing something evil toward me and acknowledge that that's wrong and I can hate that evil but I can still see the hand of God behind it to do me good and that's faith that's that's what it means to trust God as God and that's why ultimately Job could say therefore I have declared that which I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know God is so great 
that he can bring us good out of the worst situations and through the worst people. I don't have to fear any situation. I don't have to fear any person. I just need to trust God. I need to trust my good, good Father. Well, the last thing, um, or the last objection is, well, this seems impossible. You're actually, you're saying that no matter what somebody does to me, I'm to be patient with them and not lash out. You're saying that no matter what the situation is, who who I might lose or how I might suffer, that I'm not to complain. That sounds impossible. And it is. In our own strength, but not by grace, not by God's empowering. And that is why the last point is so important. We receive help from God through the means of grace. I told the story about the guy going through the uh, grocery store with this uh, three-year-old who wants candy and gets increasingly agitated and loud. And and the man is just going through the store saying, Billy, just calm down, settle down, everything's going to be okay. And you find out at the end of the story that he was talking to himself. He wasn't talking to the little boy. But the reality is you can't just will yourself to be patient. You can't will yourself to not retaliate. You can't will yourself not to complain against God in your circumstances. It takes the grace of God. And therefore, you have to humble yourself and say, I cannot do this. I cannot not retaliate unless you help me. I cannot not complain against you unless you help me because I don't see things the way I need to see them, and I need your grace to respond. And it begins with forgiveness, because is impatience a sin? Yes. And the wages of sin is death. It's a, it's a sin worthy of hell. You might say, well, being impatient with someone, what's, what's so wrong with that? Well, you ever thought about road rage? What is road rage? Road rage is adult impatience. What we often experience is what we might call infant impatience. But if you let that impatience grow, you end up doing things like running people off the road because you're so impatient with them. So at the root of all impatience is the unbelief that can result, if unchecked, in murder and apostasy. We walk away from God and we end up hurting people if we don't do something about it. And so we need to see it as a serious thing. That if I just don't worry about it, we might think that it won't cause us any trouble, but it will in the long run. And so what do I do? I need to humble myself, ask for forgiveness for my impatience, and then recognize that I need to seek God daily for the grace that I need. And I seek that through the word, through prayer, and through fellowship with other believers. And there's a lot we could talk about in that regard, and I've put all this in your notes. But let me just encourage you to realize that um, there's a sense in which God says, every day I'm going to be there for you. And I will give you grace for your circumstances and for the people you have to deal with. But he doesn't say that it's going to be automatic. 
Now, there are many times God gives us grace, even when we don't read our Bibles, we don't pray, we don't spend time with other believers like we should. There are many times he still is gracious. But normally, uh, God says, if you want grace, you need to seek me for grace. And that's why he says, pray for your daily bread and seek me for what you need. And that's what we need to do. It's like Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. You command me to be patient in these circumstances. You command me to be patient with this person. Grant with you what you command. And we give ourselves to the word and prayer and other fellowship with other believers in order to do that. Let me just close with um, a comparison. You may remember the, the uh, poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Uh, he was an atheist. The only resources he had to deal with his suffering was his own, and he was a very bitter man. Well, there's a woman named Dorothy Day who wrote the anti-Invictus poem. Uh, Invictus means unconquered. Her poem was entitled Conquered. And so I want to contrast those two as we close. Self-reliance. William Ernest Henley would say, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. But Dorothy Day would say in reliance on Christ, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Reliance on self says, In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed. Reliance on Christ says, Since his, since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Reliance on self says, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and, the, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Reliance on Christ says, beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. Reliance on self says, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Reliance on Christ says, I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Someone commented on this and said, If Christ is the master of our fates, the captain of our souls, we have nothing to fear we will be sustained to the end with our scroll reading guiltless. All will work together for our good, and though we die, yet shall we live. To have an invictus soul is not heroic. It is unbounded foolishness. But to have a soul conquered by the greatest love that exists, that then by God's grace can withstand the worst that evil can throw at us and be more than conquerors and then know eternal joy, that is a life worth living. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us. Please help us to be patient in the face of difficult people and uncomfortable circumstances. 
Help us to trust you in the ways we need to. Help us to lean on you for the grace we need. Help us to humbly confess that we can't do it on our own. And I pray that you'd grant us grace to bring you much glory, to show yourself as you truly are through our lives. Please help us for your name's sake, for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.